Welcome back to Coaches on the Beach, and today we have a we're getting a different perspective of our game with one of my biggest coaching mentors, Jay Hosick. Jay is the head men's volleyball coach at George Mason. Um, he's a California native. Jay has also had multiple years of coaching both collegially and in the USA volleyball system before landing across the country in Haymarket, Virginia. Jay is no stranger to podcasts as he co-hosts College Volleyball Weekly during the men's volleyball season. And I have to say I am truly honored to have Jay here with us. Um, Like I said, he is one of my biggest mentors. He helped me get my start at Penn State, helped my brother. It's just a family thing. So thanks for being on the show, Jay. It's my pleasure, and uh, I'm super stoked to be with you guys today, and super stoked to see you uh, taking off and running, Michael, with your career. I know way back in the day we were at Penn State together, you were interested in getting started in the business and the career, and you know we 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 hopefully didn't screw you up too much when we were doing it all. But it looks like you're you're on your feet and you're off and running, and, and your your career is taking off. So I just could not be more than happy to be a part of this and uh and talk a little shop talk a little volley for sure for sure but um to start off your resume goes much deeper than a, a minute uh question that i have or a minute intro that i have so can you kind of give us some more deep dives starting back in california everything you've gone through to get to where you are yeah it's uh it's a quite a journey uh the more i talk about it the more i realize how many years have gone by i i did not play volleyball very long in high school i played one year um i was uh, a junior at south pasadena high school uh, i just transferred into that school uh and um baseball and tennis were the two games that i really loved playing uh and in the season when i first got there um i tried out for the team and i got cut <laughs> i had to beg the coach to let me stay it was the jv team i was a junior i'm trying out for the jv team but um you know it, it, after that i i played a little beach volleyball here and there and i started a surfboard company when i graduated high school i was trying to get into the surf industry um and just realized it wasn't it wasn't going to be a good fit. I wasn't going to make it. Uh, and so I went back to junior college in Southern California at Pasadena City College. And I thought, well, I'll play a sport. It keeps you honest. Uh, I went to the baseball office and there was nobody there. And I went to the tennis office and there was nobody there. And I heard down the hallway a bunch of girls giggling and, you know, being a red-blooded American boy at the age of 20 or 21 or so. I thought, well, I'll go follow the the noise. And sure enough, it was the volleyball office. I asked if there was a men's team, and she said that there was a team starting back up that next year uh, and that I should come in for the tryouts. Um, And so I started, uh, I tried out for the team. I made the team and played there for two years. Got recruited by a couple of schools, nothing really major, and chose UC Santa Cruz as my destination. Went up there and finished out my college career. Uh, And then after I graduated, I thought I'd get into real estate. I was doing that with a fraternity brother of mine and just wasn't something I really wanted to do. But in the meantime, uh, I I was asked to be an assistant with the team that I played for. So I went up there and did that. I really enjoyed it. It was fun. I just wanted to keep playing volleyball and that was a chance for me to do it. Um, And then that coach left and I was asked to be the head coach for both the men's and the women's teams. Um, And I did that for four or five years. 
and talk about hitting the ground running and drinking from a fire hose. It was, I really had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and just, I shudder to think how my players <laughs> ever learned anything from me the first couple of years, because I really didn't know what I was doing. And then I took a couple of clinics. Uh, Gold Medal Squared was really big back in the day. And that was something that was uh, introduced to me. Uh, Dr. Carl McGowan, who was the guy running the show at the time, uh, kind of showed me the ropes. And then Marv Dunphy uh, became one of my mentors, who was at Pepperdine for a number of years. And he kind of showed me the ropes. I did a lot of camps for him, and we chatted all the time. Still to this day, get a chance to catch up with him, I do. Uh, and then after then, I went to Idaho State for uh, a season. Wasn't a good fit. And I went down to back down to Southern California and I was at Irvine Valley College with Tom Pestalacci. I got in with the USA men's national team. Hugh McCutcheon just took over and he asked if I could be a part of it all after I came in and, you know, shagged a few balls for a week and, and uh, said, Hey, we'd like to have you stay. So I was down there with them for four years or so, four or five years. And then uh, I was at UC Irvine with the women's team for a year uh, and I coached club when I was down there and all the while I was getting my master's degree. So there was a lot of stuff going on when I went back to Southern California. After we won the gold medal in 08, um, I was up for a couple of jobs and Penn State was the one that made the most sense. Uh, I just met my then girlfriend, uh, now wife, uh, and said, hey, uh, I got to go. This is where we got to go. If you want to be a part of it all. And she was absolutely ecstatic. She said, let's do it. So we both moved to Penn state. Uh, and I was there for what, six years, seven years. And then I got offered the head job, uh, at, a, uh, at, at George Mason. And it was a great fit both professionally and personally. And my wife had a great promotion waiting for her. And I've been there now for what, eight years. So it's been a long night, but, uh, met a lot of great people along the way and I learned a ton and I'm still learning a ton. And, you know, it's just, it's a career choice that I could not be more happy uh, that I made years and years and years ago. Uh, and I, and I love every minute of it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you've been around the game a ton uh, and you've obviously talked to a lot of folks that have been around. I mean, Marv Dunphy, if you don't know who Marv Dunphy is, I'm not sure what you're doing in volleyball right now. Right. Cause the man coached at Pepperdine for, at least my lifetime, if not a little bit longer, and and even taught a class there, um, and, and then obviously Tom Pasolacci, we we talked about uh, before, you know, a little bit before going on air. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like being in that circle of, you know, Jay, I'll say it now, right? Those are legends of the game, right? And those are peers. Those are people that you've, you know, come up with and then been around the whole way. What are those conversations like on a day to day, weekly basis with? people that have done it for at a really high level for a really long time. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to, I'm going to mention a few of them. You know, there, there's Tom Pestalacci, there's Hugh McCutcheon, there's Marv Dunphy and there's Mark Pavlik. You know, those are the four most influential coaches of my time that um, I learned under and grew with. Um, and I'll be honest with you. I, I, it's kind of how I like to be treated by young coaches when I'm out and about. A lot of people see them as icons, and they are. I mean, rightfully so. They're icons of the game and of, their, of the profession. But they're human beings, right? And I remember uh, working for Marv, 
you know, I would go up into Marv's office and chat with him about life and talk about everything except volleyball. You know, we'd talk about just things that are going on in the world and current events and things like that. And, you know, I'd invite him to go out and have a couple beers with us when, when the coaches were off, off thing. And, and I remember all the coaches would always look at me and go, why are you doing this? Why are you, why are you inviting me to go get beers? Why are you doing It's like, because he's a human being like you and I, he wants to go out and have a couple of drinks once in a while. He's not a drinker. First of all, he never went. It wasn't like Marv was out ripping shots with us all night long. But the fact that I just treated him like a human, I think showed him like, yes, I respect you because you're obviously one of the best minds of the game. But at the same time, you're just a, a human like me. And the more I treated those people like that, the more ingrained I got with them as, as friends, you know, these are all uh, uh, mentors, colleagues, but even more so friends. And to this day, I can still reach, uh, reach out in a phone call and, and chat with them and catch up with them. I get Christmas cards all the time. And, you know, we just email back and forth and just kind of check in and see how we're doing. So I, I think, you know, if anything, at first, you, you kind of, you know, you want to make sure that you show the due respect that's there, but the more and more time you spend with them, the more it can become more like a fraternity, right? You crack a few jokes, you, you got a couple of inside stories, you know, a couple. So all of a sudden that relationship starts to take off. And, and you know, when you're talking volley, at first I'm listening an awful lot. I'm not saying much. I'm not, I'm not giving much input. As I started to work with each one of them, my injections became a little bit more tailored to each person's wants right so pesto is much more about you know what can we do here how do we change this how do you manipulate this hugh is much more on a high level of just like hey this little minute detail that i've never even thought about so when i talked with him i had to change how i work how i you know entered discussions with marv you know i'm not i'm not reinventing the wheel with him but i'm merely saying here here's something i saw right here's Here's something that that could work. And it's just, it's a matter of just kind of, you know, reading the room, you know, you, you know, your audience, you know, you don't walk into Marv Dunphy's office and, and talk about, you know, so-and-so's, you know, escapades on a Friday night. You, you're talking about, you know, things that matter to him. So uh, they're, they're, they're normal humans, just like anybody else, but each one is different in his own right. I, I almost when you imagine these like legendary coaches, right, you imagine it's all volley all the time. And, and as you so eloquently pointed out, right, it's they're human beings. Tell me a little bit about that balance, right? How do you find it in your own staff? Uh, I'm sure as a young man, especially first in the first in the sport of volleyball, it was probably 98% volleyball. And then there was 2% what we did on the weekend at Shellbacks. And then, you know, that kind of deal. Um, so t tell us a little bit about balance and, and how you find that in your own staff. Uh, as you move on? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So I think, you know, I'll talk about Pesto because he's the one that, that really gave me this. Each, each one of those coaches, I learned something specific from, right? So Hugh McCutcheon, like I learned how to create drills and, 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 and manipulate things to get what we want out of each drill that we do, you know, with, with, with Pav, it wasn't necessarily about drills. It was about how to run a program. Pav's like one of the best, head coaches ever on how he runs that program it talked to bottom he's just unreal with pesto what i learned was how to how to balance life and work you know pesto and i were best friends 
And there was no shortage of days. <laughs> we would go into the office and I and I'd, you know, bring the whiteboard out and I'd have the whole practice dialogued out. And Pesto and I would sit on either side of it. And we'd start to, you know, talk about here's what we're gonna do today and this drill, blah, blah, blah. And inevitably something would happen that would trigger a movie quote from one of us. And then like I would say something in effect of, you know, uh, you know, we're going to let Danny do this part of the drill. And he'd talk about a Caddyshack line. And then I'd respond with a Caddyshack line. And then he'd respond with another. And we all of a sudden would forget that there was a team in front of us. And we'd just be riffing off each other and just busting up about these movie quotes. And finally, it happened a number of times. One of the guys would be like, hey, coach, well, what the heck's going on? Do we got? Is this practice or is this you guys going to have fun all day? And so that balance really meant something to me because in the end of the thing, in the end of the day, we're in the people business, right? And, and my personality has always been one that's a little bit more relaxed. I, I, I know I I'm, I'm rigid with some things when I want things to get done. And I definitely am a thermostat, right? I'm not a, I'm not a thermometer. I'm a thermostat. I'll set the tone for the day when I walk into a gym. But the reality is, is that, every day is still just dealing with people. And, and some days I'm better at it than others. I'm, I'm not a perfect coach by a long shot. There are days that I feel like I'm crushing it. My kids will come up to me after and be like, yeah, I don't, I don't get this and what's going on. And then why is this happening? And you're like, Oh shoot. I thought I was being completely clear about that. But you know, the bottom line is I'm, I'm, I'm a fun loving human being. I love to play golf. I love to surf. I love to, you know, hang out with my friends and my family and my wife and all these fun things and take trips. I can't be a hundred percent volleyball all the time. I'll be the most, you know, neurotic human ever if I did. So I, I learned from him. It's okay to do that because we were really successful. And at the same time, we got business done. So I, I learned that balance with him. Uh, and it's been, it's been pretty beneficial. And my staff, you know, I just lost my assistant coach. Actually, he, he got hired away somewhere else. And I'm, I'm talking to a few other guys that are uh, pretty good candidates and, and they're all different personalities. But the reality is the person that I bring on not only has to know the game, obviously, but they have to be somebody that I'm going to want to have a beer with after, you know, a, a weekend or a match or whatever the case is, a practice. I have to be able to have a beer with them and be able to want to hang out with them. If I don't want to hang out with you, it's never going to work out. And I think I've done a pretty good job over the years of, of bringing people on in various positions that kind of fit that mold. Um, and you know, some better than others, but yeah, it, that's, that's how I live my life. So I got to imagine that's how I'm going to have my work as well. Yeah. You, you mentioned Pav in that and how great he is at building a program. And I didn't realize how lucky I was at the time learning from you, Pav, Colin, and just like how great you guys are with not just the volleyball sense of things and being able to, crack down in the offices, understand what the work ethic needs to be, going into the gym, making sure practice is successful. But then outside of volleyball, understanding the people behind what what the numbers are that you're looking at in the computers. And that that I didn't realize it until I started my coaching career. And every year, my, my birthday's in two days, and every year I look forward to Pav's text coming through and him just saying hey happy birthday hope you have a fantastic day it's the same text every year get one on christmas get one thanksgiving and like you you never really realize that that isn't in every coach out there and it's something that i've definitely taken 
from what I've experienced and try to instill it into the teams that I'm building. Um, but it's, it's just kind of a outlier thought for me that not every player has ever had that. And not every player has seen their coach as somebody that like really cares about them. And I can call Pav any day of the week and he'll pick up the phone or he'll call me back immediately. Whenever you call and Pav talk, like I'm listening. Um, <laughs> but it's something that it, it's really crucial for, for me to understand now that not every program is like that. And how has your coaching journey from the time you started where you didn't know what the heck was going on, your guys thought you're crazy out there to, to now, how has that adapted in your coaching style? And like, what advice would you give to other coaches to how to incorporate that more into their program to really benefit the student athletes and understand that there's more to life outside of this game? Yeah, that's a good point. I'll, I'll just circle back to your thing about Pav. I get the same birthday text, right? And I, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't do that very often with people. Um, and it's something I should do, and I don't. And just and, and I always say to everybody, whenever they mention it, I go, just because I didn't text you doesn't mean I wasn't thinking about you. I'm just not one of those, I guess, touchy-feely is the only best way I could use to describe it, but that's not what it is. But it's like getting that $5 gift from your grandparents when you're a kid, right? You're like, oh, it's five bucks. Like, what am I? But it's five bucks. Mm -hmm. And it's a card. And it's a it's them showing you, I'm thinking about you on your day. That's how special Pat was. You know, you know here's the thing, though. I'll try to tell a lot of coaches I, I do interviews with or if I do coaching clinics and this and that. You've got to be able to understand, especially as a young coach, I am 100% guilty of this. When I was, and I, and I say this as a self-professed dinosaur now, when I was your age, I went into every coaching clinic. I went into every coaching seminar. I went to the conventions and I watched some younger coaches or coaches I didn't know give their clinics. And there were a million times that I'd be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. What am I doing here? What am I wasting? I'm better than this. And then when I started getting into the resume sending portion of my career when I was younger. And I would notice who would get the job. Now, granted, there were some guys that were girls that were really well qualified that got the bigger jobs. Okay. But some of the smaller jobs that I thought I was qualified for would hire somebody else and I would get caught up in the in the rabbit hole of, well, they're not better than me. Why are they getting the job? Why am I not getting the job? And it's a really bad rabbit hole to get into. You don't know why ADs hire certain people. We don't know that this person might be uh, an assistant coach from before. You, they might be somebody who left and came back. It might be somebody who is really good at fundraising and has proven that track record. It might be somebody who's really good uh, or maybe an alumni of the university. Like there's so many things that come into that. You can't just look at what their resume was when loss record. Like you can't do that. And so that was my first learning lesson was everybody's got something. And I've learned now that when I go to these coaching clinics to this day, I still go to a coaching clinic or I still click on a link that's sent from USA Volleyball about this coach teaching this drill. And I click it and I watch it and I, I watch them almost entirely all the time. And I take away from it one small thing each time. It could be a, a word. It could be some type of uh, verbal cue. It could be a physical cue. It could be 
a way that they twisted this drill a certain way that I didn't think about before. 99% of it, I might be like, yeah, it doesn't work in my gym, or maybe that's not how I want my system to be. But I always take away something. That has helped me to start to understand and know, like, yeah, we're all, you know, kind of overlapping a lot of things, but everybody's got something new to bring to the party, right? It's not always the same thing. The other thing is when I'm going, when I went through staff hirings in prior years, and when I've gone to interviews, the number one thing that I tell everybody that I'm looking for from an assistant coach, don't be a yes man. Don't come into the office every day and go, hey, coach, what are we doing today? And I go, well, we're doing A, B, C, and D. And they go, oh, this is great. And that's it. Or we might come in after a practice and we might, and I'll say, what do you think? And they go, what do you think? And I go, yeah, I, I thought it was mediocre at best. Yeah, that's how I felt too, is mediocre at best. Give me some difference of opinion. If I tell you about a drill and then I look at you and go, is anything you want to change in that? You might be my middle blocker coach, or you might be my center coach, or you might be my libero coach. And you say, hey, can we add or tweak this little thing? This is something I've been watching and I want to see get done. Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's make it work. How do we integrate it? Or if we come in and I say practice was junk and you say, no, I thought it was pretty good. Give me your reasons why. If I say I want to play player Y and you say, why not player X? Give me your reasons why. Let's talk about it. That's the only way that we're going to learn to see from different perspectives on things. I'm not the best coach in the world. I'm certainly not the sharpest tool in the shed. But I'll give you my opinion. Give me yours. And then we can discuss things. And in the end, I am the head coach. I am going to make the final decision. I mean, my, my name's on the dotted line. But I am absolutely looking for people who you're not just a contrarian by nature, but give me some thoughts and opinions. If you disagree with something I'm saying, or you want to change things the way I'm doing them, I'm okay with that stuff. Those are, I think the two things that I would tell young coaches that I think could make a huge impact for them uh, in their journey of coaching. That probably speaks a lot to where I'm going with this next one, right? Your coaching tree. So you came from, let's say these other coaching trees, right? This, this Hugh, this Mar, right? The, all, all your, you know, last people you've worked for, you've got a pretty big coaching tree of your own, whether it be former players or assistants that have gone on. Um, I guess when it comes to players, I'm always fascinated by this question. What's the first thing you'll tell them when they come in and say, hey, coach, I'm thinking about getting into college coaching. Where do you, what's your, you know, first kind of seven lines? You know, the, the first response is awesome. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, there's no shortage of times that I tell them how much I love my job and my career. And, and I could never see myself ever doing anything else. The second thing I tell them is, you know, you're going to have to learn to be humble a little bit because you're young, you know, you, you got some testosterone flowing through your veins. You're, you're, you think, you know, everything, you don't know anything. Um, and, and just be willing to be open-minded and be willing to learn. And, you know, you're going to have to grind a little bit. That's, that's something that I always tell them is, you know, you, you don't just get to get the job at Stanford your first go around. It just doesn't work like that. Um, you know, you're going to have to put some time in some places and you're going to have to go and be on the camp circuit in the summer times. And, and you're going to go out and you're going to meet people. And that's where really, the coaching changes start to happen. Like when we all see these coaching openings, these postings, 
nine times out of 10, the job's already taken. That's all just formality that the compliance office has to say, well, we got to post it for a couple of weeks and then we got to go through the product. We've already done the research. We already know who we want to talk to. It doesn't mean you don't get a shot, right? If you didn't hear about it and all of a sudden you'd send in your resume, you can still get a shot. But chances are that coach has already made phone calls and they're already on the, on the way to, to making the, the person that they want to be their assistant. But those are made because of relationships you've already established, right? So when you go and you go to a camp, be the first guy in the gym, be the last guy to leave. Uh, whatever the coach says, do it and do it better than anybody else. Do it without complaining. Um, come up with ideas if they say, hey, is anybody thinking anything? Suggest something. Try something to give, provide something of insight to them that maybe they go, hey, uh, we need a new drill to warm everybody up this morning. It's the fourth day of camp and everybody's tired. Come up with a fun drill. It doesn't have to be the best drill in the world, but it's just showing your initiative of wanting to be a part of something. Because then when those things, when those conversations, when you go have lunch with that coach afterwards or maybe you're around the big table, you know, and they, and they start to ask you, like, so what are you doing? Where are you, where are you, where are you at this year? Where are you planning on going? You could say, hey, I'm looking for a job someday. I'd love to use you as a reference. Or maybe you might know somebody who could use my services. Chances are they'll help you get there. You know, that's that's really how that all works. This business is all about people. And, uh, you know, that's that's the thing I tell those guys. I I'm, I'm love seeing my, I, I guess my coaching tree is how you would put it, but I love seeing it grow. I had a few more guys this year going off to, you know, bigger and better things. I had a bunch of guys from Penn State that are off doing their thing. And, you know, I was at Irvine Valley. There's a few of those guys taking over that are now coaches. It's really, really cool to see because uh, our industry is pretty cool. It's pretty fun. Uh, and it's a lifelong job. So, Have you gotten beat by any of your, uh, any of your protégés, to say the least? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not so good. I, the, the most recent one was uh, Peter Russell was uh, an assistant at Grand Canyon. Uh, they're pretty good this year, top five in the country. I think at one point they got to number two or three. And they came in and just dismantled us. We were very young. Uh, and and I kind of told my team ahead of time, like, hey, we're, here's the game plan. But really the reality is they knew they were up for it. Uh, and, you know, Pete didn't rub it in. I don't expect him to. Um but yeah, it's 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 one of those things where you're like, ah, dang it, I didn't want to lose to that guy. But at the same time, it's just the nature of the game. Somebody's got to win, someone's got to lose. And Pete's always been one of my favorite kids. His brother Paul plays for us on our team, and uh, you know I know Aaron obviously because when I was there at Penn State and the whole family. And so no, it was pretty cool to be a part of. And yeah, it happens once in a while, but it, it's it it all evens itself out over time. Yeah, I've got a line whenever uh, whenever I have to play the girls in practice, um, right? And it, it, I'm a winner no matter what, right? Because either I beat you, and I, I'm still better at the sport of volleyball, or you've beaten me, and I've taught you all those things. So therefore, <laughs> I get to win, all right? So you just take the same thing. Listen, Pete, you wouldn't be as good of a coach today if I hadn't had to had to had to teach you those lessons back uh, a few years ago. So See, I just I just learned my one little thing that I'm going to take from now on from this from this show. I'm going to go out and I'm going to use that line from now on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we could provide some some value <laughs> in some way, shape, or form. There we uh, go. What what about the beach game? I know you're a volleyball nerd. You love to watch all volleyball. Uh, you're still watching all the women's games and all that, keeping up to date with that. What about the NCAA beach game? What what do you know about 
what's going on right now and how involved are you? And I, I think you have a couple of players that have gone to the AVP or people that you're close with. How, what is your perspective on how beach volleyball, not only in the NCAA, but in the pros is kind of growing right now? Yeah, I, I, I'm glad to see men's collegiate beach volleyball is starting to gain a little bit of traction. Um, you know, when, when the NCAA brought on women's beach as a sport and then all of a sudden gave six scholarships to women's beach, the men's side, we, we looked at it and went, great, now they have 18 scholarships, technically, and we still only have four and a half. And so it was kind of a sore subject uh, for me. Granted, it's still volleyball, still happy about it. Being a men's coach, you just kind of get irritated with it over time. Um, but I, I have dabbled a little bit in coaching some beach over the years. Not very high uh, in, in, the, in the terms of taking my career to go that direction. Um, but I did get to work with Misty and Carrie way back in the day uh, when they were going for the gold medal in 08. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, to hook up with Troy Tanner and, and Karch and be able to work with those girl, uh, those girls a couple years or a couple times. I coached a little, not coach, but I kind of worked a little bit with a couple of AVP guys back in the day that, that uh, you know, made some splashes here and there. And then, you know, over the years, playing in Southern California when I was much younger and, and maybe, you know, pounds lighter, uh, so to speak. Uh, you know, I played with a couple of guys that were on the AVP tour and that was fun. By no means was I at that level. Uh, they they toyed with me at best, but you know, I could schlub it around with the best of them and, and at least kind of look like I was doing. The beach game's fun. Uh, that to me, I don't know if that's the, the sole future, obviously of the game, but it's just another way that it's played that, it's a completely different game. You know, the strategies are completely different. The way you approach the game is completely different. Yes, some of the the fundamentals training translates and transitions over pretty well, but the reality is, is it's it's a completely different game. And so when I watch it, I'm still learning things. I still I still watch things and think, okay, I know how I would have approached this, but then something completely different happens and I go, how did I miss that? What did I not see? Luckily, I've got a few coaches that are friends that I could talk to and kind of shoot some ideas and, and questions on and, and they give me good answers. But the beach game is so much fun and it's growing so fast on the women's side. Uh, and I just hope somewhere down the line, the men's side gets a little bit more traction. We get a few more people that kind of push it to the forefront. I, I still think we're three to five years away from anything formally with the NCAA and men's beach. But there was a time when Kevin Barnett, when I worked on the net live uh, said men's collegiate beach will never be a thing. He said, never. And I said, you better be ready to eat your words because it's going to happen one day. Sure enough, it's starting to happen now. You know, you see the one here that's held, it's hosted at Stevenson. I know Southern California has one. Um, and so it's, it's starting to gain a little bit here and there. And I'm excited about that. Yeah, they, they started doing the men's uh, beach national championship in, in Huntsville uh, around the same time as the uh, beach women's pairs uh, fall national championship. So Michael and I were just talking about that event a little bit earlier. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you've, you've had, Michael said, you know, you've had a few former players. There's some George Mason alums that actually not only coach, but also play on the, on the beach pro tour. Uh, Mark Burek and, and Brendan Joyner, right? Yeah. Co uh, better, at, better at beach guys, right? 
So I'm sure you have plenty of alumni coming through. What are the similarities, differences, kind of how do you see uh, beach volleyball, I guess, pertaining to indoor, but also um, where you're like, yeah, that's total disconnect. <laughs> uh, first of all, indoor, you know, we, Michael's heard this a billion times. We play big boy volleyball. And by big boy volleyball, what I mean is we're hitting the ball a large portion of the time as hard as we can. It's just the nature of the game. Um, you know, and there's, there's some shots here and there. There's some recycle shots and tips and this, but th those are the, those are the minimal amounts of a swing tax you're taking on the beach. I mean, you're not hitting it every time. There's so many shots that you can take to save your shoulder back in the day. And when I mean back in the day, I'm talking about the seventies and eighties. It was big court. You had a lot of ground to cover. You'd watch guys, like Sinjin Smith and Kent Steffes and Karch Karai and all those guys, they only hit the ball two out of 10 times. The rest of the time, they're shotting all day long because they had basically the state of California to be able to hit into. The thing was huge. So your shoulder could last a lot longer. You know, nowadays, that's not the case. You know, when they shrunk the court and brought the antennas in, there's not much less ground to cover. And, you know, now you, you got to be a little bit more uh, aggressive with your swings, but you know, the wind is the main thing I think that, and, and, and when you're dealing with that factor into your game, you know, not only now are you dealing with the flooring being obviously a little bit more in a little bit more difficult to work with, but now you're dealing with the wind. Um, and that's a huge deal. And I think that could be probably in my eyes, the biggest adjustment for any player trying to transition to the beach game is you're going to have to learn to play in the elements a little bit. You know, you, you you may have gotten blinded by a light a little bit here and there when you were playing in college, but now you got the sun. It's a whole different ball game with that, right? But now you got the sun, and now you got wind, and now you got flooring. I mean, there's so many things that that just that disconnect happens all the time for me when I watch and and when I play. And you know, indoor players, it's pretty simple to recreate as close as you can the same play over and over again, whether through a ball machine or a coach toss, whatever the case is on the beach, it's never the same. It's always different. So yeah, those are probably the biggest things for me that I think that the, the games are vastly different from. Yeah. I found a ton of, um, I guess, applicable skill development um, kind of from the, the recreation point that you were talking about. There's actually, I worked with Tyler Hildebrand back when he was doing USA Beach, um, and he was telling us about when uh, Josh Tuaniga and uh, TJ were playing on the same club team, and and Josh was obviously, I mean, putting up a good ball nine times out of ten, and uh, Tyler was talking about he goes, you know, we stopped trying to train that nine out of ten. We tried to figure out how to train the the one out of ten a little bit clearer, and they called it started calling it set virus, um, and it was a, a principle that I think worked really well on the beach and on the indoor of, hey, our setter now is going to intentionally set a ball a little in or a little out or a little high or a little low, little on, little off, right? And varying that uh, ability to then, hey, can we still score? Um, the other thing I, I find fascinating, I think indoor has a huge amount of offensive creativity because you can't just put the ball in the same spot every time because there's too many people, right? You You're fighting for four inches to the left or six inches to the right. Like those things matter. Uh, whereas on beach, you know, another thing that applies to indoor is that vision aspect. Can you see what's in front of you and, and make a play out of that? 
you know, can you see that middle blocker getting a little late or reaching a little low and go off the top of their hand on a on a dive block or something like that? And so I'm always yeah. interested to see the, the combination of the two sports. Yeah, I think, you know, you touched upon indoor. The, the challenge we're facing now with indoor, you know, when you watched, we were just watching the other day, like the 1994 championship when Penn State won it. The game was so slow. I mean, it, it, they were, and, and we were watching one back in 89. I forgot who was playing. It was even slower. Like, I mean, to the point where a middle blocker can commit and still land and still get out to a pin and be up on time when the hitter hits the ball. That's how slow it was back then. That vision was really valuable because you could gain some things, some insight to see how the defense moved up because the ball was so high in the air on your set, you had time to kind of look and look and look and go back up to it. Now with the game being so fast, I don't know that you have that ability. And, you know, you mentioned TJ and, and Tuaniga, and I, I worked with Tuaniga on the junior national team. He is fantastic. I, that Even then, that set, you know, that's TJ at a two-and-a-half step tempo. He's almost on his third, if not on his third. He's really got no adjustment ability, right? He has to trust and know that Josh is going to get him a ball that he needs. But that ability to take those last two steps and maybe move six inches further inside or outside, depending, is huge. And we we train that as well. And it's it's one of those things where you're like, you just hope that you can get your, you know, your your team to buy into just that little adjustment can make all that difference in the world. Out of system, you could still get that stuff, right? But in system nowadays, man, it's if you blink, it's already happened. And it's it's such a different game than when even I played in college and, and before then. So um yeah, that, that's that's a that's a pretty big distinction for sure. Do you see men's uh, slowing down at all going forward? I, I just asked because <laughs> I know I know women's has actually kind of started to go the other way. Right. We went we went through this phase of like everything's gotta be much faster. And then even at the international level, you'll notice middles are running a higher and higher tempo. So that way the setter can get them the ball from more and more angles. Men's doesn't have that same problem. I feel like you can set the middle from a lot of spots in men's volleyball. So when I worked with the women's national team, uh, we went over to Japan for a tournament. And I was really lucky that I got, I was a scouting coach. So I was scouting the other teams so that we could put together the videos for the team for scouting part. And, you know, some teams are pretty standard. You know, Russia was pretty simple. It was a red hut go and or, I mean, a, a red quick go. They weren't running a lot of bicks. Uh, D balls were almost non-existent in the women's game at the time. So it was really kind of pretty standardized. But then you see these teams like Korea or Thailand, and they were running these really crazy routes where people were just mixing up everything. And, you know, some teams, you're on the scouting report and you're, you're writing things down, you're hitting the next button. With those teams, I'm like rewinding constantly going, where, would it, where did that commercial come from? What? And I'm writing these crazy routes on this little tiny sheet. And it just makes you appreciate the fact that you don't have to do the same thing in order to be successful. Here's what, I, here's what I'm leading to. When you're a kid, when you're young, 
your coaches teach you how to do a billion different little things, right? And offenses are really kind of diverse. It's it's all over the map. As you, for me on the men's side at least, as you get better and better and the caliber gets better and better, at that point, the offenses, I think, simplify. There's nothing, you're not running a lot of crazy routes. Now your back row attacker in the middle might have a few different routes that they'll run. Maybe it's a 40, maybe it's a 30, maybe it's an on, maybe it's an off. But the go is pretty much always, always the go. The red is pretty much always the red. The D ball is pretty much always going to be the D ball. And the quick is really kind of morphing a little bit. It used to just be a one or a gap or three, if you will. Now it's, you know, you got these dogs where you're jumping away, you're jumping towards, you got kind of a little twist in there with them. But it's all about precision at that point. You know, what this this game, I, it's what I call it with my guys is we are trying to create as much order out of chaos that we can. When you have a perfect pass, you are in system. Your players have a certain route to go to. When it's like that, then it's really all dependent upon how good your setter is, right? When you're out of system or maybe you're off the net, all of a sudden, all bets are off. Things start to change. How big you can expand that circle of comfort to still be in system is really where most teams either are successful or not successful. Because if you have a team that when everything's perfect is really good, well, that's great. But half the game is not played that way. Half the game is way out of system. The teams that can still be in system but are 15 feet off the net with their setter, now all of a sudden they're still in tempo to the pins and they still can run back row effectively. Man, that throws a lot of things off. And, yeah, the middle blockers are kind of not really involved then, but maybe they still are at the 10-foot line. That's that's a whole next level thing. And that's where you see the elite teams, I think, going towards is how big is your in system versus how small is your out of system. And that that to me is I think where it's going. Yeah. I, I I get a lot of what I did scouting from what you taught me at Penn State and like I've kind of carried it program to program. And what I've found from like some of the things that you've taught me is it's much easier to scout the teams that are very good technically or very systematic um, because like it, it is that, all right, watch that play next, watch that play next. And then you get to the teams that are unconventional, um, maybe not necessarily on purpose, but it's just like, yeah, I have no clue what's going to happen. And those teams tend to steal a couple more points from you. And it gets to those games where it's like, I'm not really sure what to do right now because I don't know if they know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so yeah. like when, when you get into those situations, it's, it's, it's a little bit different. But like those technical teams, those teams that are doing that set, go quick, red, um, those, those teams are a little bit easier to understand. But usually they're doing it at the highest level where even if you know what they're doing, they, they can't stop you. It's kind of like, Penn State in 2015, we had Aaron Russell. You want the scouting report? Stop Aaron Russell. There, there yeah. you go. I, I remember Pab telling the Hawaii coach that. We were playing yeah. them in the final six round going into the NCAA championship, and we got an extra film on them or something, and he's like, we just need to know how to scout you guys. Stop Aaron Russell. Pab told him straight up, that's who you need to stop. Simple and easy. No, it's 100% true, and I think every great team obviously has got one horse that when you're in trouble, you just go, hey, go get us out of trouble. And, you you know, the, the hitter does this thing. But you're right. No, it's, it, and, you know, what's funny is I watch club coaches 
you know, these 13, 14, 15, 16 year old teams, 17 year old teams, and they're scouting their opponents. And I'm literally at one point I was like, what are you, these kids don't even, they can't walk and chew gum at the same time. What are we doing? And I remember talking to one coach and I remember looking, I'm going, well, what, what are you doing scouting this 16 year old team? Like, what's the purpose? And he goes, these are the easiest teams to scout against. And I go, why is that? And he goes, because they don't have any tendencies. Meaning it's always going to be most the same thing in every rotation. I know in rotation one that that outside hitter is going to get 75% of the balls on the right side because the opposite can't hit from the right, from the left side. And the middle blocker, they're not very good at passing. So the middle blocker is going to be interesting. So I have my guys come in on the middle on a good pass, and I, otherwise I send them over here. He goes, this little team over here, they never said anything but left side. And so all of a sudden you're just you're, you, you start to understand that when you're young – you don't understand like other teams are seeing what you're doing before you even do it. It's like playing poker. Your tells are already there. As you get better and better, you start to see better setters and better passers and better control. Man, I mean, it's, it's, it's all over the map and the better teams, you look at their distribution. It's real close to being even all the way around. And, and luckily, you know, volumetrics has helped in terms of all that stuff because otherwise you know we'd all be watching 28 hours a day of video putting together all these stats they do it all for you it's all simple and easy sure and thank goodness yeah we're, we're hoping we get something like that in the beach game ball time's coming up but we'll see. is it yeah i was gonna say don't you guys isn't volley metrics doing it for beach or at least volley station isn't somebody doing it no there's ball time has a an artificial intelligence rated scouting system um but it's it's real young Oh, okay. Yeah, because I heard somebody talking about that the other day, and I was like, oh, it's about time that because Giuseppe, I think, is doing some stuff with that. He I I've known Giuseppe for years. He's one of my favorite guys. I call him my favorite Italian. And he when he started Volumetrics, he called me up and goes, Hey, what do you think? And I go, It's unreal. So Yeah, him him and Chad Gordon have been working on some working on some stuff out there. Uh, Chad Gordon, another big big NorCal guy, right? Right up there with you. Yeah, yeah, I remember the name. Talking about uh, talking about some similarities again between indoor and beach, uh, and you know you mentioned the scholarship portion, so I know you guys are at four and a half, and obviously beach is at six. Either way, we're fielding rosters that are significantly bigger than that number, um, right? I always laugh at you look at women's basketball; they got fifteen scholarships. When Don Staley won her first national championship at South Carolina, she had thirteen girls on the roster. I was like, we got two going unused, guys. I think we can <laughs> we can find the use for them over here. <laughs> Uh, do you want to tell it, say they're on the women's basketball roster and then let them come play uh, beach volleyball? Um, and so, but I do know that men's much like beach has moved significantly overseas. So can you talk a little bit about recruiting those guys who, I mean, there's not a ton of uh, Europeans saving for college when, when college is inexpensive or free over there, it's hard to get them here for anything less than a lot. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, what's kind of your philosophy on that? And how do you go about, you know, keeping up with that trend? Well, it's, it's evolved. My, my philosophy has evolved. Um, and there's a, there's a couple of points I'll make on this that I think are the, that stick out to me. First of all, back when I was a player and when I first got into coaching, you know, you'd see the occasional player from somewhere outside the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you, you hear about the one player here, the one player there. You know, Puerto Rico is always going to be an influx for obvious reasons. But you heard occasionally about this guy or that guy. And then it started to come a little bit more often. 
and I started to think about, well, the, these are American universities who are providing spots for American players to get better. You know, the college system basically is our, is our national team pool. Uh, it's a training pool. And how are American kids going to get training when these foreign kids are taking the opportunities? And it, and it was a very naive way of looking at things. But when you look at the way recruiting has evolved over the years, you know, I first got involved. Well, obviously, I was at a D3 school, so I, I wasn't forming it based upon uh, inherent knowledge, but I was watching what was going on. You know, back in the day, there were maybe 20 to 25 blue chip kids a year, right? And those were the kids that all the big programs are going after. They were all fighting for the same fish. And usually, you know, each program got one of them in some form or fashion. You know, a couple would get a couple here. Like UCLA used to get a whole bunch because obviously their selling point was you're going to win a championship in your four years. And that changed a little bit. But that was all there was. And then the next group, you know, maybe there was 50 kids that were pretty good. Uh, they had potential. They were physical. They were tall. Whatever the case was. And then after that, you know, you, you kind of tapered off a little bit and you're kind of getting some scraps and you kind of fill in your rosters and you're, you know, sometimes you, you, a couple kids pay out, you know, you, it is what it is. But if you didn't get one of those blue chip guys and you were a big time program, you were like, shoot, man, we're not getting anything. What, what, why do we not get anybody in this class? Here's what's changed. A, there are way more boys club programs now than there were back in the day. I mean, there's, I mean, Southern California is always going to be Southern California. Chicago has exploded. Pennsylvania has always had solid programs. New York's got a ton of good programs. Virginia's got a ton. Of, Florida's got a bunch. Texas has got some now. Midwest is all, all that area. Everybody's got boys club because boys high school is starting to become sanctioned at some of these states that didn't have it before. So you've got this influx now of kids learning how to play the game at an earlier level than they were before. Now, instead of it being 25, I bet you there's 50 to 75 blue chip kids a year. Easily that many kids. And granted, they're always going to be, you know, the, the head and shoulders. But the number 50 kid on the Fab 50 list now is still really good. And there are... 25 guys on the list below that are could be easily in that list. So you could see the list expanding. But here's the funny thing. That next group that used to be maybe 50 guys, that's now 300 guys. There's 300 kids in this country that have had the training could be on any Division One roster, I think. I and mean, maybe that number might be a little high. But you get where I'm going with it. There's a lot more in that pool. Now, granted, there's more programs in the country collegiately but there's still only the same, you know, 25 or 30 top programs in the country that are historically strong that are still going after those kids. So now you don't get any of those kids out of the top 25. You could take a chance on a couple of kids because guys mature late, uh, later than, than girls do. I've seen how many uh, dozens of kids over the years that, you know, you're six, three outside hitter when they're a senior in high school, and all of a sudden, you see him in college two years later, he's 6'7", and he's hammering balls because the program took a chance on him because he showed some potential, um, and coaches took a risk. So now you've got that component, right? 
And then you look at the transfer portal and that adds a whole new realm of things. And it's like, so recruiting, you know, and international kids, they see volleyball and play volleyball at a much younger age. Are you, are you national U18, U19, U21 teams? Historically, I know this year is a different year for the guys who knows, but historically have not finished very well because the, their counterparts overseas have all been playing pro ball or at least playing in their pro club league from the age of 12 and they see it at a high level. So those kids, although they need more money, usually they're a much more polished player, which is why when they come out here, they kind of step in and they're plug and play. Most of them, uh, not all of them, but some of them, I mean, Nikoloff, the kid's making a million dollars all of a sudden. He would have still only been a junior in college. I mean, that's how good the kid was. You know, he's, he's, you know, set the bar pretty high, but it's not followed that much by, you know, there, there, there's not that much drop off from the other kids that come in after him. So you put all of those things together. International kids are, are great additions to programs. I have a, a Bulgarian setter on my team right now who is a great addition of the program. Kids on the team get to learn about a new culture and how somebody grew up some out, you know, out where they are. They get to see what America is like and kind of bring a new nuance to the whole thing. Um, I'd like to have a couple or a few on the team every year if I could. It just it just really grounds everybody into the whole family aspect and it just grows your tree, so to speak. Um, but it's recruiting is way different. It's way different. I mean, you're still you're still doing the same things, trying to get the best kids you can and fill the positional needs you have. But it's not as much as a fran- of a frantic pace as it used to be. I think you're still going to see the top 15 kids or whatever commit early in their junior year, but you're still not getting kids to commit until, you know, well into their, you know, soft, or, uh, senior year in the fall. And that's kind of how I like it. I like to, I like to have them out and take a visit and, you know, maybe get a commit around that time. So it's changed a little bit. Michael, I would love for beach to move to that direction. Do you think we're, <laughs> we're heading? <laughs> yeah, you guys are trying to go after kids way earlier than we are. I mean, granted, you're, you're, we're all looking at the freshmen and sophomores, but obviously, you know, the men's side, we're not, we're not trying to commit a kid at the age of, you know, 15. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that must be this summer. Obviously, August 1st was the date for juniors. And it wouldn't have shocked me if you told me there were 40 athletes committed prior to that August 1st date. So prior to any official or unofficial visits taking place, the top, maybe not necessarily the top 40, but I would say 40 out of the top 75 probably have committed somewhere. Wow. And it's just crazy. It's created such a, a frantic and sometimes nonsensical pace, which will ultimately, as we talk about, probably play out in the, in the uh, transfer portal years later, right, for a group that maybe – for any athlete that maybe didn't do a lot of preemptive uh, education for themselves on the program. Well, there's no loyalty anymore, right? Back in the day when you picked a program that you wanted to play for, you were, you were picking it based upon quality of the education, coaching staff, and the team, and, and maybe scholarship money that you were getting, right? Now, kids are, are saying, yeah, it, and I'll just point to what I see on the women's side. Your transfer portal is like 100 pages thick. It's ridiculous. And most of them are starting their careers out. You know, the freshmen and sophomores looking for places to go. On the men's side, there's very few of that. There's still some, but a lot of them are the grad students. I had a kid on my on my team last year that played for four years for me 
and was supposed to come back and get his grad school degree. And he wanted to go off and do something different and see another school and be a part of another culture, another program. Awesome. You know, you're, you're seeing a lot of one year transfers to get a grad degree, which I think is pretty cool. That that could be a really cool way to put a bandaid on something for a year to buy you a little more time than maybe go after a kid for a four or five year cycle. But on the women's side, there's just no loyalty. Oh, I didn't, I didn't get enough playing time over here. I'm going over here. Oh, they have more NIL money for me. I'm going over here. It's, it's, it's a wild west out there. Yeah, it yeah. was in January. Um, I just wanted to do one of those quick little, I have a question studies. And so I just assigned every team in the country to 21 players. And then I went through the portal and I counted up every single kid, not including the grad transfers, the ones that had graduate, m- moving on, trying to see something different. And it was over 63% of players that played in the NCAA Division One last year were transferring or trying to transfer to a new school in seven days of the portal being open. I was just like, this is, oh, this is crazy. 60. Are you serious? Yes. It was 63%. It was, it was close to like two, 2,500, 2,600 kids My that were in God. there at that time. And like some of them were like transfers into that mid year. They had some sort of exceptions. I didn't do too much in-depth research why sure. everyone was transferring. But it was some outstanding number. It was above 50%. And I was just like, this is too much. And, and the horse is out of the barn, right? You can't mm-hmm. you can't change it now. Hopefully yeah. the COVID year slows everything back down. But I don't know. Do you guys see the same? Because, you know, on one hand, we see the players uh, obviously going throughout. But then I know on our side, uh, from Beach Coach's perspective, this year was the grand carousel of um, coaches moving around. I'm no better, right? I, I took a new job in January. Um, and so I guess, do you see that same thing happening on the men's side or would you say there's quite a bit more stability? I mean, obviously you've been at George Mason for a good chunk. Riley Salmon, who just got over to Concordia a few years ago, I, I foresee him being there for a little bit of time. There seems to be a little bit more. Cold. I remember when I, I first started coaching, obviously my career was on both sides, men's and women's at the same time. My next job was just women's. My next job after that was men's and women's at the same time. And then uh, at Penn State, I went to just men's. And then my last year and a half that I was there, I was being interviewed by a, lar- by a lot of women's division one programs. So I could have gone back to that side. And I held, I held on uh, as long as I possibly could because I wanted to stay on the men's side. Um, not because the game is better, not because I felt that it was a, a, a more pure state for me to be in, whatever the case was. I just like coaching guys more than I like coaching girls. Um, and I, and I seem to be gravitating towards that every time I was asked the, the carousel on the women's side, it's constant. I mean, the kids that I had, <laughs> The kids of two years ago that graduated from me are already making more money than I am in their their first paid position. It's ridiculous. Uh, the money that is generated from women's collegiate volleyball for salaries is way off the charts. Um, and good for them. I mean, I, I can't be mad at them, but you know, they're 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 also a lot more inherent risk for that. You know, there has to be some success. There has to be. Uh, some proven ability to show that you're worth that money. And on the men's side, you don't see that as often. 
Uh, and it doesn't mean that they don't still want to win, that ADs don't want to be in the hunt. It just means that, hey, you know, we are not going to be one of those programs. And if you have a bad year, all of a sudden we're going to look at you and go, well, let's see. Maybe your contract's up next year. Maybe we go a different direction. That happens on the women's side a lot. So I think I'd rather take a little bit less salary but have a lot more stability in terms of my future uh, and be able to stay at a place for a number of years and build a program rather than try to get a quick hit and get a win and then project to my next job. That, that doesn't, that doesn't appeal to me. I know it wouldn't appeal to my wife, um, you know, and I don't have kids, so I, I wouldn't have to worry that much, but you could start to see like how that, how all those balls in the air, you start juggling and you go, man, if I have to pick up and move every year, every other year, just to get to where I think I can stay for it a little bit. And all of a sudden you have a couple bad years and then they fire you. You know, you get to your dream job. You're like, oh, this is awesome. And then you have a couple bad years and they go, well, you're not the right coach. And they bail you. So, yeah, I, I think on the men's side, it's a little different. But you're you're seeing, you're seeing more programs being added. So there's more opportunities. So that, that bottleneck will start to open up a little bit. But there's not nearly as much movement as there is on the women's side. Gotcha. Yeah, and I, I think one thing that you mentioned in there is like you were really good at building a program, and like you've shown it at George Mason first couple of years. I mean, you won a conference championship from Penn State, who had won it for twenty straight years or whatever. Um, and on the other side of that, one of the ways that I really look up to you is the quality of life aspect. You really understand the the coaching culture versus I need to have some fun outside of life. You're pretty big on social media, you and your wife taking pictures of your food. I think you were just at the beach a couple of days ago. Um, like what are some pieces of advice that you would give somebody about that coaching? Like you can build a program and still have an outside life. Yeah. You know, I, I think when I was younger, I was building a resume, right? I was, trying to get as high as I could, at least at the time where I thought was where I wanted to be. And in order to get there, you got to have some experience. You got to have some, uh, some, some relevant job, you know, work uh, experience that you can bring in there. Maybe have a couple of different places you've been where you've got some mentors and people that can, can be your, re your references. Once all that happened, my priorities changed. You know, when I was at Penn State, I was still trying to be a head coach again somewhere. So I was still working with USA Volleyball. I was still doing camps. I was still doing all this stuff. And now that I'm at Mason, it doesn't mean like I've gotten here now. I just rest on my laurels. It means my priorities now have changed. I don't need to be on the road six weeks in the summer to do camps. Yeah, it helps with recruiting, but I have a different way of recruiting than most people. So it's, it's not necessary. Yeah, I could do three weeks of camps and, and make an extra, you know, however many thousands of dollars. Is, is it really going to make me better? Is it really going to make our program better? It, it will help my assistants. So we're going to bring it back next year to help supplement their income. But it's not something I want to grind 12 hours a day on like we did at Penn State or when I was back in California. Um, I didn't need feel the need to be with USA Volleyball all the time. You know, I put in 12 years or 15 years or so with USA Volleyball. It's a lot, you know. And so all of those things were things that I was doing in order to build my resume so that I can get the job that I wanted. 
But now, you know, I'm, I'm 53. I'm almost 54. I've been around the game for a long time. Uh, I've traveled the world and I've got lots of great experiences and lots of great stories and great people I met along the way. But I like spending time with my wife. I like playing golf. I like traveling the new places. You know, we're, we're, we're looking at maybe getting a beach house and, and spending some time down there in the, in the, the winter time, you know, on the breaks and, you know, we're looking at doing something like that now. And so it's like, I just, I would much rather, you know, finish out my life being able to say, yeah, I, I've got this job and I built this program and I've, it's running and it's humming and it's doing all the right things. You know, won a couple of championships along the way. Hey, that's kind of fun. That's great and fun and have some assistants go on and become head coach. And that's really, really cool. But I've also got, hey, i got a lot of golf trips I like to take with my boys. And I've had a lot of great traveling with my wife. And, and we go and see new places in the world and explore new foods and this and that. And, and that, that's important to me, too. Uh, and I, and it's, it's, been my, it's been my guiding light my whole life to be able to balance things. Sometimes I'm really good at it. Sometimes I'm not really good at it. But, um, you know, it's a learning process. But I think I'm getting better at it all the time. Follow-up question to that. What What's your favorite thing your wife cooks you? Oh, come on. It's tacos. <laughs> Every single time on social media. As without soon as the tacos without question. I, I, you know, being a, a Southern California boy growing up, I, I, I consider myself a little bit of a, a Mexican food snob. Uh, I've eaten some of the best Mexican food ever uh, in Southern California. And my wife and I go to Mexico every year. We have a house down there we go to that, that we spend time with and, and obviously, I've surfed up and down the Baja Coast when I was younger. I've been really lucky. It's my favorite food in the world, but it's also, you know, the, the Mecca. And her and I come out here and, you know, some good places here and there, but, yeah, nothing like we make. So, yeah, we, we have tacos all the time in our household, all the time. Good uh, good Mexican food must be cooked in either a truck or an open-air uh, tent. It must come in yellow paper covered in, in grease a little bit and yep. then um, yep. i should i should struggle to communicate with the person that i'm ordering it from well That's, you shouldn't yeah. struggle you shouldn't struggle if you learn to speak spanish that will help out first and foremost and <laughs> yeah, second yeah. of all any beans that you get have to have bacon fat in them if you don't put bacon grease or bacon fat there you're not doing it right it's just the way those things go together but yeah no it's you know and you wash it down with a cold adult beverage every choice and it's a pretty good time right there i i remember we would go surf in, in Mexico all the time, and there was nothing better than getting done but with surfing. You're still dripping wet. You walk up to the little taco stand that's just off the beach. You order a few tacos. You get a cold beer. And I'm telling you, that is as close to heaven as you can find uh, in, anywhere in the world. Uh, it's some of my best memories. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Your, your uh, analogies and, like, some of the sayings that you come up with, too, are, like, off the charts like when you, <laughs> beverages always used to be milkshakes so we'd go yep. get milkshakes after the game yep. and then there's another saying that i you said it during the national championship when you were broadcasting this past year and it just brought back so many memories like when somebody would hit the ball into the net uh, on a serve you have a way of just saying any place that is close to the relative location that you're in. So McDonald's, Taco Bell, hit it anywhere, just not in the net. <laughs> and I tried that once with one of my teams in the past, and they all looked at me like I was crazy. I was like, yep, that's a J thing. I'm not going to try that again. Yeah, I, I've, uh, I, I've had a few 
uh, one-liners over the years. Some of them savory, some of them not so savory. Uh, you know, you, you, you try to make an impact on anybody. The funny thing is, is, you know, you, you get a player that emails you or calls you or texts you or whatever. And they say, coach, I remember you used to say this to me all the time, or I'm, I'm coaching now. And I use that line and I go, Hey, you, you may not have done it, but you remembered it. And that's all I cared about. And the, the whole thing about the net, I got that from Marv. He used to say anywhere in Malibu, but the net. And I remember it stuck with me and I was like, oh, I'm going to use that. And so all he would say is anywhere in Malibu, but the net. So what I'd say is, hey, anywhere in Fairfax, but the net. But then I would add, you could hit it to Chipotle. You could hit it, you know, to Kmart. You can hit it to JCPenney. I don't care where you hit it, just not in the net. And it's and it's all about serving as opposed to hitting, right? And because serving, it's like you need... But yeah, that's that's funny that you mentioned that because I, I do use that quite often. Yeah, for sure. I, I love that I now know that it came from Marv because I had it attributed to another coach that had played at Pepperdine. Yeah, and now it all it all it all mixes in now. I see it. It's yep. it's a good little history lesson for me right there. Absolutely. No, it's it's uh, you know you, you, it's very rare that you find somebody who reinvents the wheel. And, uh, you know, most of us are just kind of putting our own flavor on what we hear before and adding our own personality to it. So, yeah, that's where I got it from is Marv. Well, Jay, uh, thank you for coming on and spending the time and talking with us, giving us a different perspective of the coaching styles, all the lessons, everything. I've definitely picked up some things just like you said that we need to pick something up from a different person every single time we talk to them. But um, I really appreciate you coming on always a huge uh, piece of my life and my coaching career. So appreciate it. It was my pleasure guys. I really had fun talking to you and, you know, I wish you guys nothing but the best in this endeavor. And, and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun catching up on, on old stories and old things that, that uh, crept up over the years, but I wish you guys nothing but luck and, and uh, we'll see you guys on the recruiting trail. I'm sure. Thanks Jay. Thanks guys.